Hey listeners, it's Andy, and I'm here to see if you've tried Audible yet. With an incredible selection of audiobooks, it is the perfect way to dive deeper into the stories upon which some of your favorite films are based. Audible members get a credit every month to redeem on any audiobook they like, plus access to a huge plus catalog of podcasts, originals, and more. Just imagine listening to the books that inspired movies like The Born Identity, Moneyball, or sci-fi classics like Dune. The best part? You can try Audible free for 30 days and get your first audiobook on them. It's a great way to experience storytelling while supporting this podcast. To get started, go to thenextreel.com slash audible or text thenextreel to 500-500. Listen to incredible audiobooks and support the show today. That's thenextreel.com slash audible. I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to The Next Reel. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. In just a matter of seconds, you're going to hear a classic episode of this show from back in the day when we called ourselves Movies We Like. It took us a while to settle into the show's format, so you'll notice some differences as you listen to these episodes. For instance, it takes us a bit of time to actually get into the conversation about the movie. Things like that. But we're still proud of the conversations about the movies themselves, and we think they're worth keeping in the library. So enjoy these episodes from our back catalog. And you can become part of our Discord community, learn more about the show, and find out how you can become a supporting member at thenextreel.com. So thank you, everybody, for downloading and listening to The Next Reel. We appreciate your time and attention, and we hope you enjoy the show. This is a good, uh, don't you think this is a great movie to kick off uh, our, uh, you know, Meryl Streep uh, series? <laughs> a movie that really highlights the breadth and depth of her ability as an actress? <laughs> Over the course of three hours, she's in this movie not three hours? <laughs> <laughs> well, there's a reason at the beginning of her career it was a supporting actress, but yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yes, there's... All right. <laughs> We have a lot to talk about tonight, Andrew, uh, and so and it's a long movie. And I think everybody knows when we have long movies, uh, long shows. Mm. That's not always true. It's not always true. Well, we're going to do our best to fix that. So let's uh, jump right into it. We have one. Cor- I think we have one bit of correction follow up. We do. Yes, uh, last week we uh, read some of our iTunes reviews from around the world, and one of those reviews I attributed to um, one of our wonderful listeners, Brendan, down in Australia, and uh, realized, uh, thanks to a message that he sent us, that the uh, review that he, that I read by Mel Bowie was not his. His actually was, uh, I, I guess it just wasn't showing up. or but it's, Yeah, it wasn't there when I looked yeah, at it. Yeah, but it's there now, and it says, everyone's a critic. Uh, but, <laughs> which is a great, great start. Uh, but few are as easy to listen to as Pete and Andy, hosts of The Next Reel, a relaxed weekly podcast covering a wide range of film interests. Whether you like to keep up with the latest or discover or revisit the greatest, you can rely on Pete and Andy to keep you informed and entertained with their friendly banter that makes this one of the most enjoyable and least pretentious of film podcasts. Thank you very much. For in-depth discussion on current hits and misses, catch the monthly Film Board Presents episode. Get excited about what's yet to hit your local cinema with Pete and Andy's weekly trailer reviews. Test your movie smarts with the Instagram Guess the Movie Challenge. Learn about some of cinema history's all-time greats, or maybe not so greats, as your hosts present their various film series featuring movies with a common theme, including such diverse topics as the cinematography of James Wong Howe, 
film noir, adaptations of Stephen King's stories, and the films of Hollywood's golden year 1939, including Only Angels Have Wings, starring Rita Hayworth, who gave good face. Oh, Andy, how could you? Yes, <laughs> yes. Hey, Madonna was there first. <laughs> for me, this is the most fascinating and enjoyable part of the next reel. Having been a movie buff for over 40 years and having seen most of the films covered by these guys, one of the few podcasts talking about such movies, it's fascinating to hear how these classics are regarded by others seeing many of them for the first time. Almost as fascinating is each end-of-program flick chart ranking of the film discussed as each host tries to persuade the other to rank the film to their way of thinking. And if they can't, well, that's what the rock-paper-scissors game was made for. I thoroughly recommend this show for when it comes to film podcasts. I find myself eagerly awaiting the next, next reel. Thank you, thank you, thank you. That's a wonderful thing to say. We really appreciate it. So great. That was... (laughs) That is the the that is sets the new high bar for <laughs> g- fantastic reviews. I'm I'm gonna steal that and put it on the website. It's wonderful. Thank you. I think Australia may be the next Sweden. Aussie, Aussie, Aussie! Oi, oi, oi! There you go. See, we know some things. <laughs> uh, uh, this is so. Then when we're gonna do our our uh, world. Uh, a world meetup. It's gonna go. We're gonna go to Sweden, mm-hmm. and then we're gonna go to Australia, and then we're gonna come home. <laughs> That's pretty much it so far. There's <laughs> a long line. <laughs> uh, I'm still excited about that. Very much. Uh, I have a bit of follow up from uh, the good Ben Lott. We have a new blot spot. This covers Force Majeure, uh, oh, yes. a Swedish film we did last week on our our um, uh, listeners challenge, and you and I actually quite liked this film. Yes, we did. Ben uh, didn't as much in the blot spot this week. He says, it is hard to express how little this film interests me. I'm usually into narrative movies where lots of events happen, but Force Majeure is movie where one thing happens. Sure, it's very introspective, and it asks the audience to question how they would react in a similar situation, but I could have got that in 20 minutes. Two hours. I think it cut off it must have cut off oh, yeah. or something you want me to finish it i'm seeing it. do you have yeah. the rest of it my email didn't go oh, through all the way two hours is just too much i struggled to stay awake and lost interest before it was even half over it's certainly a beautiful film but just completely bland your rank 67 out of 197 my rank 183 out of 197 <laughs> <laughs> wow yep very different two, opinion there two paths diverge in a yellow wood <laughs> Well, I think Ben uh, would be on the uh, Per side of things. Well, uh, yeah, we tend, absolutely. Think, up on the Gustav side of things. That's right. Good film. I say we move right into the telling of the people wearing we are from. Where are we from? <laughs> This is the next reel, everybody. I'm Pete Wright, and that there is Andy Nelson. Hello. And we spoil movies. Tonight on the show, we're kicking off our Meryl Streep series with Michael Cimino's 1978 Vietnam epic, The Deer Hunter. 
Before we get into that, you should learn more about us at thenextreel.com. Subscribe on iTunes or follow us on Twitter and Facebook at The Next Reel. And seriously, we're about to talk about this movie that immortalized Russian roulette on screen. You think I'm going to come up with a gag about games here? Yeah, you should head over to Instagram.com slash The Next Reel and play The Next Reel's Instagram. Hashtag Pony Prize. Hashtag This Ain't No Deer Hunter. Hashtag Guess the Movie Challenge. Andy, how did we do this week? This was a, I guess you could say, a rough week for old Steven. <laughs> I oh, mean, on, in so many ways. First of all, let's just say he's sick. Yes. God, so so feel better. Yes, send Steven. You know what you should do? You should take a, a picture of something. If you're a regular player, take a picture of something soothing on Instagram. And I want you to tag Steven. What is it? Steam Robot. Steam robot. Tag Absolutely. Steam robot on Instagram and send him, and because the, he's sick, and our beloved friend Steven Smart needs good energy. So yes, that that out of the way, <laughs> it still wasn't a good week for him. It still wasn't a good week. <laughs> Another great week for the Swedes, though. Ah, Sweden yeah, dominates image, straight out of uh, the gate. Image one. Gustav Larsed nails it with Into the Wild, the uh, fantastic film that um, was really quite a haunting uh, true story um, that uh, Sean Pendrick, Emile Hirsch, Vince Vaughn, Catherine Keener, fantastic film and wonderful imagery. And yes, uh, Glarsed nailed it and is once again entered to win the 2015 Pony Prize. Congratulations, Gustav, our dear friend. Uh, another point on the board for Sweden. Andy, it's time. Let's do trailers. <laughs> Now you say we've talked about this movie is what you say. You say not that we've talked about, it, but that it's it seems so familiar. We should have. Is that is that an accurate that is, uh, that, representation? That's accurate, and I think you kind of agreed with me. Yeah, I did. I even had to go look it up, and I realized that I've I have uh, I, I I thought about why it sounds so familiar because it's everything I wanted the paper to be. <laughs> I'm talking, of course, about Spotlight. Uh, Writer director Tom McCarthy. Uh, brings us the true story of how the Boston Globe uncovered the massive scandal of child molestation and cover-up within the local Catholic archdiocese, shaking the entire Catholic Church to its core, according to IMDb. I don't. I think the trailer just came out a little while ago, a, couple, a week or two ago, maybe, and I missed it somehow. Uh, but this looks awesome. Uh, it is it, the cast is fantastic. Rachel McAdams, John Slattery, Lee Schreiber. Schreiber Michael Keaton, Mark Ruffalo, Stanley Tucci, Billy Crudup, Len Curieu, Jamie Sheridan, Brian Darcy James, Paul Guilfoyle. Uh, I mean, it just goes on and on. I cannot wait to see this movie. I'm such a sucker for uh, news news movies, uh, newsrooms, newspapers, television news. I am such a sucker for these things. Uh, Tom McCarthy, I don't know a whole lot about. He was He's an actor. Uh, he's been in a number of things. He only has uh, seven writing credits from great movies, but I've never associated his name with them. Um, well, some not great movies. Million Dollar Arm, uh, I, I think, was was good. He's got a story credit on Up, um, but The Cobbler uh, did not. It was not something that I think did uh, very well. We talked about wanting to see it. It was one of our trailer picks. It did not go well. But he's been. He was an actor. He's been in a number of things. Uh, including uh, most recently 
his turn as Michael the Robot in Pixels. So there's that. I love Tom McCarthy. Well, I should say I love The Station Agent. That's like uh, one of my favorite movies from 2003. Just a fantastic film. The Visitor was a brilliant film. I heard Win Win was really, really great, but I missed that one. Um, This one looks like it's in line with those earlier ones. The Cobbler seems like a misstep. Anytime you cast Adam Sandler in something, it seems like a misstep. Yeah. I mean, I, I, what's interesting about this is, too, the one that I love so much is Good Night and Good Luck, and he was in that, and I, I did not remember that. Yeah, he's one of those those guys who's kind of a, a supporting player sort of actor. You know, his face yeah. is very recognizable. Um, but, uh, you know, I just... I love those small, intimate stories that he likes to tell, like Station Agent, Visitor, Win-Win. That's kind of what I like. This looks like it's a little bit bigger, but I, I'm, I'm right there with you, man. This looks just fantastic. Yeah, yeah, it really does. And, you know, you mentioned Station Agent, Win-Win. I've seen none of those. Uh, I missed all of them, well, the ones that you like the most. Those are the ones to, to go out and see. <laughs> All right, I will. They're now on my list. Excellent. Uh, this one looks like it is coming out uh, November 6th, 2015. Excellent, excellent. It'll be on my birthday list. Well, mine is another November movie. Mine's going to be a Thanksgiving film. Uh, just in time for piles of wonderful food on the plate, we're getting yet another Frankenstein movie with piles of body parts to make another uh, being come to life. <laughs> well, that's a gross connection. <laughs> yes. I was looking for something, all right? It I didn't terrible. have a lot of time. That was a terrible thing <laughs> Vic- that you found. Victor, yes, it was. Hey, they're the ones who are responsible for it. I, I blame them. <laughs> Victor Frankenstein. Huh. <laughs> oh, was just derailing so fast. <laughs> Victor Frankenstein looks really interesting. It is a story of Frankenstein told from Igor's perspective, which I find quite interesting. Daniel Radcliffe plays Igor, so no kind of hunchback, what hump sort of uh, hunchback sort of character for Igor in this film. Just a normal looking assistant. And James McAvoy plays Victor von Frankenstein. And I love that actually somebody in here goes Frankenstein and. <laughs> <laughs> It's like, and then everybody laughs. Yeah, it's it's like, like they'd seen that movie. I was like, maybe they're going to pull out the stops and, and play play around with this a little bit. I hope so. I hope they're going to do something fun. Because, I mean, there have been a lot of Frankenstein films. I really enjoy Frankenstein films. But there are also a lot of really bad Frankenstein films. It's just a lot of them aren't worth watching. I hope that this one is one that is worth watching. It looks fun. I like the characters. I like the way they're looking. I like the way the film looks. Paul McGuigan. Um, is directing this. Um, he did Lucky Number Slevin, which I actually liked quite a bit. Push, yeah. which I, I didn't see Push or Wicker Park or Gangster Number One. I haven't seen a lot of his stuff. He's done been doing a lot of TV lately, like Scandal and Sherlock and uh, Monroe. I'm not sure. Um, I don't, you know, I missed Sherlock. I feel guilty for that, but I haven't seen anything else that he's done. Um, but that being said, the stuff that I have seen of his, I have liked. So I, I feel like he could potentially pull this off. Max Landis is uh, the writer of this, and that uh, that piques my curiosity because he is certainly a personality taking after his father. And uh, he's written some stuff that, um, that uh, you know, American Ultra coming out this year. I didn't realize that's We're, something that he had written. Yeah, but, uh, but very excited about that. But Chronicle we've talked about, I mean, and I like that yeah. quite a bit. I haven't seen most of the other stuff that he's done. It's just a wide variety of shorts and other random sorts of things. But Me, Him, Her, did you see that one at all? Nope. 
Did not see that, but Haley Joel Osment. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I like I, I like I like the old Haley Joel. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm very curious about this one. I don't know yet if it's one that's worth running out to go see, but I'm certainly curious about giving it a try. I I, I like they're taking a, a different angle with it, and I hope that it's good. I do too. I particularly love the tag. I think it's brilliant for this film. Meet your makers. <laughs> right. <laughs> so good. Uh, I, you know, I, uh, I, the only thing I could think about, and, and I think maybe they alluded to this, that, you know, casting Daniel Radcliffe as Igor, he's a good looking lad. If he doesn't finish this movie somehow with a hump, <laughs> I'm going to be super disappointed. It will, the movie will have failed for me. He needs a, a, a limp and a, and a hump. <laughs> That's Otherwise, great. I'm really looking forward to it. That's funny. I think it looks great. And I think it looks great. I think it looks great. James McAvoy. I mean, he's coming off of, uh, you know, he's, I, I, I'm going to trust that guy. I like him. Yeah. He's somebody that I, I, he's pretty close to the point where I can say, oh, it's a James McAvoy film and want to go see it. You're supposed to say vehicle. Well, I didn't. When they in the know, if you're in the industry, like I thought you were, you're supposed to say vehicle. I think we established that on last uh, our last um, film board. Film board vehicle is the word. It's a James I'm McAvoy there. vehicle. I'm going to say it's a James McAvoy vehicle, <laughs> and it may it may derail. It may be a, a vehicle with that you know gets a flat. It could go into you know crack the bell housing on the transmission. That would be a, a vehicle problem. I'm going to move on. <laughs> hey, Pete. Yeah. Did you ever piss and take a drink of beer at the same time? One shot is what it's all about. Deer has to be taken with one shot. Blessed is the kingdom of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. You gotta listen to me. You wanna stay down here and die? the deer hunter from Michael Chimino uh this is this was one of those epic three hour uh whoo yep. man <laughs> yes it is if i never see a russian orthodox wedding again it'll be too soon <laughs> the only thing that, that really came out of that wedding for me is like i wish that i was in some cultural sort of thing in my circles where i could go to an event and everybody knew the dance and we all had some like <laughs> communal dance <laughs> that we would all do it's like that would be so much nicer <laughs> <laughs> even if the dances are dumb like even if it's just you know variations of the chicken dance if everybody knows them all right. that would be great that would be so nice no more white man's overbite <laughs> which let's face it is essentially what these were like they're all variations of the here hold your hands and do hop and and kick and <laughs> I'm I'm a terrible dancer, so it's so easy for me to to do that. But you know who's not that Christopher Walken. 
No. That that guy can dance. He is fantastic. Have you seen that music video of him? Have I? Oh, yes. Yeah. When he's dancing on the walls? And yeah, up the escalators. We need to so put good. that on the show notes. Just yes. Everybody <laughs> needs to watch that because it's just magical. You know what? I'll tell you what. You put on the deer hunter and right about minute 12, I want you to start watching that music video. <laughs> and you can watch that music video for the next 55 minutes. And then come back to the movie and you'll be caught up. <laughs> Am I being too hard on it? It's, it is a long, the, <laughs> the wedding scene it was, is, that was the one that kept putting me to sleep. <laughs> that part is really, really long. I mean, I appreciate what Chimino was doing here. I appreciate the build that he was giving to really get to know these people, but it's, it, it feels quite interminable. <laughs> <laughs> it was it's one of those that actually um you know was a i, I think a, a risky choice i mean he had originally said in this thing that it was going to be 21 minutes uh and then slowly but surely in, in post-production <laughs> he pushed it longer and longer and longer uh to the point that his editors were telling on him and they were uh, trying to cut him down and it just it, the, getting this we'll talk about post-production i assume in, in a little bit but getting this thing made was an incredible Circus. the The result ends up being a story that, uh, or a film that tells a story of these three, uh, really centers on these three friends, uh, and their experience drafted in, being drafted into Vietnam and going at the same time to Vietnam. Uh, the, the community they leave behind, uh, as cemented firmly in our brains by the wedding, uh, and uh, the community that they then come home to, um, or in in some pieces. And how they have changed over the course of their experience uh, during the war. It's not. It's not a pretty film. No, it's In, t- no. it's a tough one to watch. It's a tough one to watch. Um, but uh, this the very concrete three acts uh, structure in this film really, um, you know, I, I think what this does for me is cement why these guys, and it, in particular for me, Christopher Walken. Um, is such a tremendous talent uh, in the field. I mean, this film, I, as much as I'm not crazy about the film overall, I walked away from the film thinking, ah, I, don't really, <laughs> I don't really need this one so much. Um, I deeply enjoyed the contributions of these actors, deeply, every one of them. Yeah, it was a really strong cast, and it uh, it was just exciting to see people like uh, well, John Kazali, or I'm not sure how you say his last name, something like Kazali, yeah, um, yeah. who had such an incredibly short film career, but uh, you know the five films he was in, I mean, <laughs> pretty stunning run. Godfather, The Conversation, The Godfather Part Two, um, uh, Dog Day Afternoon, and this, uh, you know, quite quite a run of films before he um, died of cancer. Right after this, he had cancer while filming this. Um, just a Awesome watching him in this film, uh, George. And never, never saw the film. No, he never even got to see the yeah. film. He died before uh, it was finished, and uh, so that's just uh, that's just tragic. Um, and then just uh, the uh, like actors like George Zunza, who is in it, who's who's kind of a great supporting actor who's been in a lot of other films, but it's just nice seeing him in a film like this that just, he just feels so authentic. Like every one of these actors 
cast feels so authentic to be playing somebody in this small Pennsylvania mining town. You know, they all feel like they belong to this community. And and maybe that is part of the length of the film and part of all the scenes that just, they do seem a little endless. But I do really feel like these people are from this world. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And I think that's the argument. I, I heard this film reviewed by somebody else recently, and that was the, the same argument that they made, which was that, you know, particularly the wedding, like you are a part of that wedding because... Uh, you know, if you were a part of that community, you would experience this part of these people's lives because everybody in the community went to that wedding. Like it's just the entire town shows up at that wedding. That's what they do. They work, they drink, and they go to each other's weddings. And because they they give us that experience, we feel so much more when they, man, he smash cuts into Vietnam. Yeah. Like we are on the mountain hunting one shot, one shot. And then suddenly there are helicopters flying down the, the river. And um, and and because of that, that that quick transformation, we are that much more bought into this new chapter of these lives. And and I think that's I, I absolutely understand that. Um, and I think that's a choice uh, for me. My experience of the film, I don't feel like I needed that much prologue. As a, it was a lot of prologue, and there was a lot of just you know wait in that wedding and the the reception that they could have just slashed and I don't think lost much of the experience. This is not a wedding like The Godfather where I actually really feel like that wedding works really well. I think there's a lot of elements going on at that wedding. You've got um you know uh, Marlon Brando doing his work up in the room upstairs. You've got interesting conversations between um Al Pacino and Diane Keaton about his role in the family. You've got photographers or the the police, I mean, taking uh, license plate numbers out in the parking lot. You've got mm-hmm. the the Frankie Valley type of singer. Uh, there's there's so many elements going on in that wedding that all create a much more interesting story going on in that wedding. This is a wedding where it's like we're just watching a wedding. I mean, we do have the uh interesting character elements going on between some of the people i mean robert de niro clearly has has something uh going on for meryl streep and you know so there's some interesting character interactions there but it just doesn't it doesn't carry the same weight where you feel like the time spent there was worth it yeah that that was my experience too uh once we get out of that though um, you know, and we get to Vietnam and come home, it, it's a pretty discreet film. Like, it feels to me very much more like a, you know, uh, like a film I would sit and, and watch. It's a it's a film of just the horror and terror of humanity, of what we humans do to each other. It's awful. Um, but but it's it's something I can get through really easily. Yeah. 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 As hard as it is to watch, it is it is much more easy to get to. And I think it's just more focused. The beginning feels much more broad because it really feels like Chimino is painting a portrait. And I mean, I haven't seen his his follow up to this Heaven's Gate, um, the infamous film that nearly cost him his career in Hollywood. Um, I've never seen it. I've only heard all the horror stories about it, but my sense is that it really is like watching the first hour of this film um, 
for like three hours or something like yeah. that. You know, it's just all welcome to this world and that's really all you get. I mean, that's my understanding. I haven't seen it. I could be wrong, but um, it, it, it clearly didn't work, whatever he was doing with that one. And uh, I think that, I mean, I, I do appreciate the opening of this. I just, I, I like a lot of little character moments. I, Meryl Streep's first scene. I mean, that's a fascinating character moment to watch in the film where her father, you see just kind of the abuse that she goes through and uh, before she, uh, before this wedding. And, and then she's at the wedding and she's got the big bruise on her cheek. It's, it's, it's a very interesting moment to have that's it. You don't ever come back to it. It's just there. And there is a lot of that going on in this beginning. And I like that all of that is there, but it does feel like quite a bit. Well, it's an interesting thing about Meryl Streep's part too, because you know, from what I understand, and I saw this in two places, Wikipedia and another review on the site that she was actually, she took this role because she was uh, in a relationship at the time with John Cazale and, um, that she, you know, it was De Niro who suggested she should just take this role. And, and it, she was given the role as kind of the generic girlfriend and was given the setup uh, that Chimino gave her the setup of the character and said, go, go write your lines. Mm-hmm. And so she essentially wrote her own character in the film. And to me, uh, I think it is a, uh, she is a real highlight in the film whenever we come back to their little town in Pennsylvania. Um, because, her voice and the way she carries that bit of awkwardness that she knows she's in a, uh, you know, she's got this sort of perilous loving relationship with Nick who is, you know, who is, uh, fine in the beginning, but doesn't come back, uh, uh, you know, early on or late in the film. Uh, but, and yet she has feelings clearly for De Niro. They play their, the, the subtlety of their relationship, I think brilliantly. Um, I absolutely buy kind of where they are and the sensitivity that they're trying to to you know take uh in light of her feelings for this guy who's gone um you know i i think she adds a lot of heart to that home uh, far more than the generic girlfriend character would yeah absolutely which uh, you know knowing that she ad-libbed so much of her lines to, to really kind of create this character just goes to show Meryl Streep's understanding of character and how to get things across. I mean, the fact that she ended up getting nominated for an Oscar for this film, I think is just a highlight to her understanding of how to portray a character and and how to bring that character to life. Have you seen um, any of the stuff she'd done prior to this, any of the Holocaust or Julia I have not. I think the only thing that I've seen of hers before this was uh, what was the the bit part she had in uh, Deadliest Season. Everybody rides the carousel. No, actually, it was right after this. I'm sorry, Manhattan is what I was thinking of, mm-hmm. but that was right afterward. So no, I have seen nothing that she did before this. I, I haven't either, but it, I think you're right. I mean, it's fascinating to see that she comes into Deer Hunter and turns around this this performance that that leads to you know awards that was basically a, a throwaway part. Yeah, right. Like with an, un, yeah. Look at all the other girlfriends. I mean, <laughs> there's what 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 girlfriends, right? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Because um, I, I I think that there was an interesting relationship with um with Stephen and Angela 
you know, there there was something interesting going on there with the fact that she was pregnant um, by another man and Stephen was going to marry her anyway. His mom was clearly upset about the whole thing. According to Chimino, the father was Nick. And, and you wouldn't really know that watching the film, but that sort of stuff that he gives to the actors is is interesting. And I think there's a really interesting story there between Stephen and Angela that uh, is not brought forth. And Angela's character has some interesting scenes, but nowhere near the level of Meryl Streep's. And I mean, the character, Meryl Streep's obviously more important character because her relationship with Mike when he comes back is is kind of the critical relationship there as they figure out what to do with Nick. But Angela, I mean, has interesting scenes, but she just, I mean, a Meryl Streep is not in that role. Well, and that's one of the things I found really frustrating when you talk about the, the kind of relationships at home, that Angela, played by uh, Rutanya Alda, her role in this film, I think, is one of that it is the role that demonstrates the the heart sickness that goes on when loved ones go to war. I mean, she has a full on breakdown. Yeah. Uh, and and to the point where she she's not speaking. She's not you know, she's the, the only time we see her is in bed um you know when after when, he comes after home. after when he comes home michael goes to see her and she's in bed and she's not speaking and he barely gets her to write up what we see as a phone number um for where um where her husband is and I, I i think that is so frustrating because when we see where these other two guys end up right we see them in the hospital we see them uh, you know amputees we see we see the kind of relationship that they have re- as returning soldiers um she is the corollary to that like she's the what we want to see about the devastation that occurs at home and instead we get just such a brief brief moment with her that I think is a that I think is a, a real missing piece and instead it moves right back to Saigon and uh, as they they try to go get Walken's character which is which is fine but I just think it's a missed opportunity to really demonstrate if you're going to show the horrors of war you, you know this was a great opportunity to show the horror abroad and at home uh, that it, it really devastates uh, those left behind it yeah Cut out some wedding and give us a little more of that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Let's see. So let's talk a little bit more about our principles, shall we? Shall we? Um. Yes. I. I yes. That's fine. What you you don't like that idea? I think it's a great idea. You don't sound really committed to it. Well, I, I wasn't sure if we're completely moving away from the story yet, or are we going to come back to this? Oh story? no! Hey, I want to do no. Let's talk story. You want to talk story? Let's keep talking story. I um You want to talk about you want to talk about the Russian roulette. You're ready for that. Well, I yeah, actually I I'm I'm very curious because this film ended up becoming quite controversial because of the Russian roulette and because of the way that the Viet Cong were depicted as just absolutely horrible people. Um uh, the the thing that I uh think is interesting about how people reacted to this is that saying, you know, there is no evidence that anything like this with Russian roulette was ever um, uh, ever actually happened in any POW camps, that any Viet Cong actually did this to any American soldiers. Uh, there's no evidence. And P- 
people were very upset that uh, Chimino had this story about this happening in this in this uh, POW camp. And it's like the the story. This movie only exists because of the Russian roulette, which I find very interesting. The fact that there was this other script that was out there um, called oh, I'm going to blank on what it's called. I'll keep looking while we're talking. Um, there was this other script that these two other writers had. Um, the man who came to play, the man who came uh, to Lewis play, Lewis Garfinkel and Quinn Redeker. That's it. Thank you. They had written this script about um, some guys who are going to Vegas to uh, gamble via Russian roulette, and um, they liked the script but didn't think it was complete. The uh, the EMI, the the producers at EMI who were producing it, they. Um, brought in Chimino and and uh, some writers to actually rework it, and it it uh, incorporated this Vietnam War and everything, and that's the only reason it's really there. But it really becomes kind of the central focus of the film, which I find very interesting. And people got so upset, saying it never happened. Chimino and his producers all were saying, you know, it's kind of a parable of war. You you know, we're not really saying that it has to happen. Um, in order for something horrible to, or for people to have to deal with horrible things. And I think that's what they were trying to say in this film, is that it didn't necessarily happen, but horrible things can happen, and this is how these people dealt with it and how it affected their lives. And this goes back to conversations we've had several times about either biopics or films that deal with real situations and where is the line as far as what what can you depict and what can't you depict gone with the wind certainly brought up a lot of things even going back to social network you know the the manipulations that the writers had on those films it with the realities of the world it's like are they you know is it okay to do that when you're creating a story versus telling what really happened yeah, that's a tough one because you know, and the way the the way the story goes, this you know the the rewrite was done. You know, hired uh, Derek Washburn, uh, Chimino hired Derek Washburn and gave him a month. And what he was doing while writing the script was not researching what was going on, but watching television uh, and you know just watching the war footage uh, from Vietnam, and that was the extent of his experience. Uh, you know, just sort of creating this scenario um i don't know i you know i've i've heard from those mixed reviews from those i know who served in vietnam and uh, you know this is one of the things you do in high school right it's you, you know go interview a, a number of vets for your u.s history class that was one of the things i did and the experience was talking about uh, you know, the films that impacted them, the deer hunter from those who were there, it's pretty even split. One, does it, it yes, it absolutely captures the grit and the the sense of experience, whether or not they experienced Russian roulette, you know, there was sort of immaterial, uh, but just captured the chaos, particularly in the kind of the fall of Saigon. Um, and others who say, you know, it's this was nonsense. This was not the movie that that did justice to the experience. And that's, that's a little bit frustrating for me as somebody who is wildly ill-equipped to even talk about, you know, the experience of war. Um, this movie did a great job of turning me off of it. Right. I mean, in, in terms of the experience of the cultural reality of war, this is a movie that, that, you know, puts me further from uh, the, the center of thinking that humans need to be involved in armed conflict with one another. 
I think, yeah, I think it's a very effective um, anti-war film. Or, and I don't even know if it's an anti-war film. I just think it's a film about the devastation that people can go through, can go through. I mean, they may not, but the devastation that some people can go through when faced with uh, these horrible war situations. And it's it's a fascinating look at it for me. And it's like, it's, it's interesting because the what the things that people focus on when they look at historically accurate depictions of things Quentin Tarantino had a lot of people upset with the Mandingo fighting that he um that he had in Django Unchained um I don't remember if there was a big uproar of people upset that Hitler's killed in in the end of uh Inglorious Bastards uh, in the in the way that he is, in the way that the that kind of whole situation happens, um, but clearly historical manipulation is something that people do. I mean, honestly, every story that anyone makes of a real story has manipulation in it to tell a better story that fits for the purpose of the screen unless you're doing a documentary and even in a documentary the filmmakers are deciding which facts to keep in and which facts to not keep in in order to make the story move better there's no there's no um, way of avoiding that so it becomes a line as where is the line where you stop manipulating and you and you just focus on telling the true story or is it always okay to kind of manipulate? Because in the end, you are just telling a story. Yeah, I mean, I think you could you you extrapolate that to just straight up fiction, right? I mean, fiction is is doing essentially the same thing. It's telling a story, um, but you know, it's telling a story to convey a message, and it's just doing it in a way that is, um, you know, that is uh, that that never really happened. When you look at movies that cross the line, like Inglorious Bastards, and and give you a real setup, but fictionalize the, you know, fictionalize the end and fictionalize the main players, or you look at at Titanic, you know, there was no Jack in titanic right. right in in the real story right. of the titanic despite right? what I mean, some people think <laughs> despite what some people think there was no jack uh there there is a um i i, I don't know i i feel like the movie uh at least chimino's and washburn's vis- vision of the movie and what it does and the story that it tells and the the message that it conveys is a strong one and it is incredibly powerful, and it's delivered by an incredibly talented uh, cast of actors in a way that is in- uncomfortable uh, and challenges worldviews. And uh, that, you know, all of those elements count to me as a win. Um, and I think controversy be damned. That's how I feel. I, I find it incredibly powerful. Even if it doesn't have a disclaimer saying, you know, the events in this film are fictional, I don't know if it needs that. You know, there's enough evidence out there. I mean, geez, just read all the people's reviews saying, you know, that it never happened. That's all I need to go, oh, okay, that's interesting that it never happened. It doesn't change the fact that I find the film very effective and I find it uh, a, a really interesting glimpse into the horrors of war and conflict and how awful people can be to one another yeah even even if you if you go one step further and say the artist's interpretation of war yeah right you know i mean that's and that's our experience anyway i mean you know look at the movies that have that that you know attempt to do greater justice uh to the experience of war um you know i don't know where would you how would you uh, feel about 
Saving Private Ryan in this discussion? Um, well, uh, yeah, I, I mean, I think that, uh, I, you know, I don't know if the if the idea of the little hunt to go find a soldier is is um, that believable, but maybe it happened. I don't know. But uh, it's an interesting look at it. I think the war scenes certainly depicted are uh, pretty realistic, but you're, you have this fictional journey through the war, you know? Mm-hmm. Isn't that the same thing? Yeah, it is. And Apocalypse Now, I mean, that's kind of a completely surrealistic look at a war. Absolutely. Or um, what else? Platoon may be more realistic. I mean, that might be a more realistic because Oliver Stone was really kind of making it a little more autobiographical. But that being said, the fact that you've got like this such antagonistic relationship between several of the uh, of the leaders and the situation that happens to the, like between them, I you know that's pretty horrific. And it that again, it's Oliver Stone's supposedly yeah, taken his from interpretation. his life, but it's his interpretation of the things that were happening while he was there. So yeah. it's I I just don't think you can avoid it. So I I understand people getting upset that this didn't happen, but. You know, I, I feel like I, it's, you know. I think that's it's it's magnified. It, it would be different if it was if I, I think without such a horrific uh, premise, right? The Russian roulette is particularly grotesque, and it's grotesque not just because of you know the the depiction of um, you know killing oneself with the gun to the head thing, and it happens repeatedly. Um, it, it it's horrific just the the psychological trauma that these guys go through as as you know participants forced participants it's horrific watching the you know um uh, Christopher Walken's transformation it's horrific that sequence when he first pulls the trigger in the hut um you know his experience the 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 line that gets tripped in his head as you you really can feel him changing in that sequence and allows us to buy his full transformation to the full on gambler at the end um, the mindless sort of just you know risk taker at the end all of those things are so horrific that i think it it makes that you know the claim that this this never happened that much easier to make because we don't want it to ever have happened. We don't want to ever have imagined that this thing was possible. Uh, and I think that's, that goes back to the artist's interpretation to say, look, you know, really, if I could think of it, it probably is possible. Yeah. Yeah. And, and who's to say it didn't happen. I mean, there could have been one yeah. guy it happened to. I mean, it's, it's so hard to, uh, to say like if something like this happened, regardless, it makes for a very effective fictional film. Yeah. All right. Well, we've solved that. I don't know if there's truth in this, but uh, IMDb trivia is never wrong. (laughs) (laughs) But it says, during some of the Russian roulette scenes, a live round was put into the gun to heighten the actor's tension. This was Robert De Niro's suggestion. It was checked, however, to make sure the bullet was not in the chamber before the trigger was pulled. I know that was I know that was also true in the the final scene when uh, uh, when he goes up uh, and and takes the gun away from John Cazale in the in the um, you know when they go hunting right there was a live round in the gun um, and he says you, you this joke you think this is a joke right. big shot you know jeez scary you know I mean. <laughs> I appreciate, you want to go hunting? I appreciate actors who get into kind of the performance and stuff, 
but sometimes I, I like think of that the uh, you know our marathon man conversation between uh, Olivier and Hoffman where, where Olivier's just like just act you know he's like <laughs> <laughs> it's like that's you don't have to go that far you're just you're just acting <laughs> it's like, yeah do we really need to have a live round in the gun right let me let me assure you the people watching these movies know that you're acting. <laughs> I will say, watching, you know, any of the people who have to pull the trigger while they're, uh, you know, uh, going through this these situations, it is horrifying. Yeah. And it, it just, it is an, a, a testament to the performances from uh, Robert De Niro, from Christopher Walken, from John Savage. They just, I mean, it is torture. It really is. Yeah, it is. Absolutely. Um Okay, now can we talk about these guys? Let's talk about the actors. Let's start with John Savage. I really like him in this film. Yeah, he's pretty good. And it's 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 an interesting character um, arc for him, going from kind of this unsure guy getting married to someone that he knows is pregnant with that it's not his child, um, to seeing him break down in the uh, uh when they're in the little POW camp. Yeah. Um is just horrifying. To then him at the uh at the VA uh, hospital and uh, you know just the way that he delivers lines like I don't want to don't make me go home. You know just yeah. just the yeah. lines like that it it just really breaks your heart. Yeah. He's amazing. Uh, the the contraption they put him in uh, when he was amputated. I mean, that's when his. I think his his uh, for me his performance really kicks into high gear when he's actually put in the underwater cage when he screams out to Mikey, Michael, there's rats in here. Uh, that that was a pivotal moment for me in in the experience. But their escape, you know, when they float down the river and his really um, catatonic state as he's just thrown about uh to the point where he's lifted off in, into the air by this helicopter and is and and drops and apparently they did this lift out of the water you know um 15 times and they it was the actors no stunts and they did it with the helicopter and and uh and had to fall back down into the river to to um, uh, just keep doing this over and over again i mean it's just exhausting um to him being carried by de niro uh all leading to this uh, amazing you know, unveiling of his amputated self. Um, I, I thought his was just a, a really perfect package uh, of a character. And it, it's more interesting to me to think about in the original script, you know, the men who came to play, this was one character. Uh, and it was in the rewrite that they split this one character into three. Uh, and so, you know, he gets the the real physical damage right part of of the film he takes on the physicality where nick takes on the the psych the psychological damage mm -hmm. uh of the film and and you know um mikey gets the gets what he was able to you know call his strength right yeah uh i i thought it was just uh amazing he has uh savage again has let's see one two three four five six seven eight nine 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 14 things, 15 projects in post-production right now for 2015 through 17. 
Oh, pre-production for this 2017. Yeah, he's, uh, I mean, 202 credits. He's somebody who has not stopped. Uh, he just is so busy appearing in just, it seems like anything, uh, you know, whether it's a film or yeah. a uh, uh, TV movie or whatever. He is all over the place. He is one busy man. Fantastic. I really enjoyed him in this film. Yeah, he's one of those actors who it's like, I, I watched him and it's like, what happened to him? And then yeah. you look him up, it's like, oh, well, clearly he hasn't disappeared. <laughs> yeah. It's like he is all over the place. But you just don't, uh, you, I don't know, he's just one of those smaller actors who just disappears in roles and you just don't realize that he's there. I mean, he's in Do the Right Thing for Pete's sake. Godfather Part 3, you know, he's yeah, he is all over the place. Uh, Welcome, Christoph. Um, yeah, I mean... We've talked about him on the show before. Uh, he's fantastic. He's really um, just amazing to watch. And this film really gave us, gave him to us for the first time. I mean, he had been acting before this, but this is really where he kind of came into his own. And this is where, um, I mean, he won his Oscar here uh, for The Deer Hunter and mm-hmm. clearly uh, deserved it for the performance he did here. Yeah, his was stunning. Uh, the uh, leading to the final scene, uh, which was improvised uh, between the two men, they sit down across from one another, just like they had in the hut. Uh, and the direction was, "All right, Chris, you pick up the gun, you pull the trigger, you fall, and De Niro holds your head." Hmm. And that's it, you, that does absolutely no justice to the experience of that final sequence no it's truly devastating it is devastating especially after the moment right before when you get that glimmer in his eye and you it's almost like tears are just starting to well as it's it's almost like he's finally clicking and he realizes who it is who's sitting across from him and he says one shot and mm-hmm. you know it's like so with that how do you justify like like did you at one point i mean did you think he was going to turn and come back i mean I know the movie sets up that i mean it's a pretty grim movie so it's it's it'd be pretty easy to say okay we know he's not coming back but did you really believe that i you know i mean i've seen the film so many times i guess i just don't know i'd have to go back to the first time i saw this and i just don't remember at all like was i surprised that he did that or was i expecting him to kind of put the gun down and go with him I don't know. I don't know. It's interesting. I it, It's one of those films where, because of the horrors of what we've seen, it really could be something that plays out either way. Yeah. It almost makes more sense to play out the way that it does, though. I think it does, too. I mean, I know, and, and I think that works better, because I think you look at his character, like his, the, the psychological sort of deformation that had happened to him over the course of, you know, from the point where that first Russian roulette uh, game he'd been introduced to it to the point when they realized that somebody had had put you know had put a capitalist spin on it um to the point at the end of the film where we realize he's a central player now um there there was nothing for him to come back to even if he realized who he was he had been he had been through so much he had been damaged sort of so completely that that i the way i watch him for me he recognizes who 
uh, De Niro is. He recognizes that there is there's a lifeline sort of back home, and recognizes that there's no way he can ever hold on to it. Yeah. Uh. Yeah. There's a, there's a timeline. You know, one of the other th- complaints about the film that people have is a timeline issue with the amount of time that goes on between when the film starts and ends. Because I mean, when De Niro goes back to get um, Walken, it's the fall of Saigon, which is was seventy five, I believe, and that was years after their tour would have happened. And the fact that Walken would still be alive, like nobody is that lucky you know you don't you don't uh, get that lucky i mean he would have uh if this if he had been doing nothing but playing russian roulette for years he would have died long before um de niro gets there but do you i mean i did that bother you no it doesn't bother me at all i'm just voicing one of the complaints that people have which you know again it it's it doesn't feel like it is meant to be a realistic depiction of war this feels more like a parable of horrible things that happen and how people deal with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's my take too. I did. It didn't bother me. And I, in fact, it, part of the parable, part of the sort of fable of it uh, really allowed me to believe that he had been that lucky. Yeah. Well, it, I mean, it obviously, yeah, it, it works within the context of this story because he, it's, it's like the, um, uh, uh, what's that uh, Bible story with the, the character. It's like the, the movie, uh, the mist where, you know, it's never going to, the mist will never really clear up until a certain deed is done that, you know, the, you know, it has to happen in order for the save, the saving to, to take place. And it's almost like Nick was never meant to kill himself until Michael had returned and was there to be a part of it as a way to almost, find catharsis in the situation so that he's actually able to kind of come home and move past some of that stuff. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And get the girl. That's <laughs> uh, not probably shallow way to look at you're it. You're a terrible person. Uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> so De Niro, you have anything else to say about uh, Roberto? Uh, you know, We've talked about him a lot on the show. I yeah, just think yeah. he's fantastic. And it's just, he is mesmerizing to watch in this film. He truly is. Um, he's, he's just that good, you know. It's just uh, um, more powerful, small moments that really um, make this character come to life. So much better than Taxi Driver. <laughs> So much better than Taxi Driver, and it's hard to look at him in in uh, you know Army Green in this movie without expecting crazy to come out, <laughs> right? Uh, and so that was a pleasant surprise too, just a contextual sort of relief. A different troubled vet, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, so good. Yes. Um, all right, so we're we're cruising on uh, here. Can I just say I think in terms of my. My favorite experience in the film, it's it's George Zunza throughout. And you already brought him up, but I find him just he I I just watch him laugh and I'm in hysterics. Uh and and he was the redeeming the the central redeeming feature of the wedding. <laughs> 
because of his jolliness, because he walked around with with uh, you know eight or ten cigars jammed in his waistband of his suit, uh, <laughs> while while smoking one and drinking heavily, making people drink before they could come making in, making <laughs> people drink. Yes, <laughs> he was terrific. Uh, really, really funny. Um, and and he carries some interesting uh, moments in the film also. You know, there's that uh, uh, moment where uh, Michael won't give Stan his boots to wear because Stan is such a, a mess and, and always so disorganized. And uh, Dunn's character is the first one to say, oh, come on here, just use Mike's boots. Uh, so I like that he kind of has that uh, way about the relationship between the friends where the ones who don't get together, he feels like the glue who kind of holds them together. He runs the bar where they hang out. Yeah. He, pl- he plays the piano in that incredibly touching quiet scene after the first hunt, right before we cut to Vietnam. It's, it's very mm. touching the way that he kind of brings out the, the pensiveness that everybody has. And then he's the one who's breaking down at the end and starts kind of humming God Bless America that leads Meryl Streep and then everybody else to kind of start singing it. It's it's very interesting, his character, and how um, key it is. It, it really is kind of a, a catalyst uh, character that helps other characters through scenes. It is, and symbolically, I mean, you brought up the bar. The, the final sequence of, you know, when he brings everybody back to the bar and gathers them around for food. Um, you know, the symbolic importance of food in healing is, is you know, not to be taken lightly, um, you know, in, in history of drama. I mean, this is that that is a central theme. And the fact that we end with them, with all, the remaining friends, uh, including, you know, the ones that were really difficult to get back to this table, um, you know, to, to overcome all of their barriers around this table of food. To, he brings them into like the beating heart, the symbolic beating heart of their community, that restaurant around that table to break bread is, um, you know, it was really powerful. Uh, so I think you're right. And that, that makes an interesting sort of dramatic punchline to his, his overall character arc, which for so much of the film has been comedic, mm-hmm. um, you know, that, that he's able to turn that into something more meaningful is, is really great. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. We don't see a whole, enough of old George. We should see more. Chief, of of, chief of the boat, chief of the boat. Nothing. Crimson tide, man. Oh yeah. Uh, you know, I, I Basic instinct is what I always picture him in. That's the one thing that I, oh. I'm always stuck on. He's the one who gets ice picked in the elevator. Yeah, still ain't ain't no ain't no chief of the boat. Ain't ain't no chief of the boat. <laughs> Get it, Mister Straight, Mister Hunter. I am not on your side. That's a good oh, movie. So good. Yep. Uh, okay. Anybody else that uh, really shines for you? Um. I think that's pretty much it. I mean, uh, I did enjoy Chuck Aspergren quite a bit as one of the other members of the group, um, who apparently this was his only film. He actually apparently was a uh, a worker at the plant that just really kind of clicked, and they thought he'd be a great addition because he's just such a big hulking brute of a man. And so they brought him in. He just worked perfectly as the other the sixth man in this group. He does a great job, and that was it. This is the only film that he's done. You don't know if he went. <laughs> he was, I don't know if he went back to working in the in the plant again or what, but that was it. Yeah, he was great. Yeah, he was great. He just totally fit. 
He did. He started humping the Cadillac. <laughs> That's the best from the inside. Like he's from the inside. <laughs> a real highlight. Oh, so uh, all right. So uh, so we talked about how complicated this thing was to actually get made. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Well, it's this is one of those movies that uh, I you know. Americans didn't want to make this movie. It actually took this British uh, company, EMI, and it took, uh, I believe it was producer Michael Dealey, who uh, kind of got latched onto that script, The Man Who Came to Play, and uh, and got it made with Chimino. But Chimino is, I mean, he is one of those directors who is a bit of a piece of work. He's very um, trying and uh, trying with his actors, trying with uh, everybody involved. The script writing process was trying, the acting process, the filming process. It, uh, the initial budget, I think, was $8.5 million, and it, uh, it only increased from there. Um, it, so, yeah, it's, it was a difficult film to get made. Right. I mean, after this, it was, there were two duds, uh... I mean, really, what what was a real highlight after this? You're the dragon? Maybe. I mean, I think that Tomino's interesting career, for me, happened before this film. Um, Silent silent Running. Up to this film. I I didn't, you know, I still haven't seen Silent Running, but Magnum Force, I think. Magnum Force. Great. And I love Thunderbolt and Lightfoot. That's a really interesting uh, kind of a buddy... um, robbery film that goes in places that you wouldn't expect it to go. I really enjoy that film. The Deer Hunter, I think is, uh, you know, I, I, I do enjoy this one quite a bit. Um, he, after this, it's, you know, it's like Heaven's Gate is the is the big mess that kind of nearly killed his career. It was five years before he did Year of the Dragon and then The Sicilian, Desperate Hours, The Sun, Ch- the Sun Chaser, and then um, that's pretty much it, so... I can just about never guarantee. I, I just about guarantee we are never going to do this particular film. But he's uncredited as a writer on *The Rose* mm-hmm. with Bette Midler. Um, I, I'm peripherally interested on his experience <laughs> writing *The Rose*, uncredited after *The Deer Hunter*. Yeah, I find that. I wonder what he contributed to, to that. It's an interesting. Uh, it's an interesting directional shift there. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. Anyhow. <laughs> uh, okay, so uh, we have talked about the cinematographer of this uh, of this film before, I believe. Vilmos? Vilmos. Have we? Have we? I'm almost sure we have mentioned this name. I feel like we have. Because, because... we did Close Encounters. Oh, yes, there you go. Mm-hmm. There you go. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Uh, any, uh, you know, for me, the the real highlight uh, was, gosh, I, and and the hero image that I chose for the website for this really is is the one for me is the incredible wide shot when De Niro comes back from the war and his first hunting trip that morning he walks out and he climbs up on this ridge of the mountain and the clouds are like coming up to him and you see other mountains kind of appearing in the peaks and it's just him in the middle of this epic landscape and that for me is it just absolutely nails what Vilmos does really well 
and in capturing these incredible landscapes. And he does he does it in Thailand on location shooting for Vietnam. He does it on the the deer hunting hunts themselves. The stalking of the deer hunting is just a, a just beautiful um, you know demonstration of how to capture landscape. Yeah, it's it's a stunning work here. A lot of uh, you know he I think he did a great job of of keeping the town always looking really drab and gray, keeping mm-hmm. the interiors looking much more colorful. Um, they All the areas had their own looks. You know, uh, Vietnam had kind of much more, I mean, a lot more green and, and life-like in Vietnam, which was interesting. And then the mountains were much bluer. And so it had kind of nice color uh, tones between all the different areas. And uh, yeah, the imagery in this film, uh, whether it's, you know, big intense scenes or beautiful mountaintops or intimate scenes of two people in bed. I think he does an incredible job of, of, of creating just very uh, strong images that, that work well to tell the story. There's a sequence where, where they're driving up to Zunza or they're driving up to hunt and, and they all get out to go to the bathroom in the bushes and Zunza's the last one back in and the camera is like sitting up in the woods <laughs> uh, it's looking down on this turn on the highway and there are no cuts as they drive away and then back up and then drive away again uh, every time, you know, teasing Zunza that he can get in the car, but he never quite, he never can. And it's a gag that you've seen played out because, you know, you've probably done it yourself. <laughs> uh, and it's not funny. And then it gets funny and then it's not funny. And then it gets funny again. And I, I think all of that is credit to not moving the camera. Uh, and just letting the joke appear on screen, and uh, I—it's—it's it's just one of those another one of those great examples of smiles I got from that that particular choice. Absolutely. You know what else uh, he shot that we talked about? What blowout? Oh yeah, that's another one. Yeah, and another one where he he makes those those static camera choices. I think that's another great example of how to use the camera uh, and just let what happens happens. Yeah. And I liked the music. Stanley Myers, who is not a name that we've talked about as far as composers, did some interesting themes in the film that I liked quite a bit. I, I think that the music is uh, is very haunting and it's uh, touching and it's poignant. It uh, is very nice. His uh, Cavatina, performed by classic guitarist John Williams, different than the John Williams we all know and love. They're, this is totally different John Williams. Um that theme from the deer hunter, I think, is just a really beautiful theme. I totally disagree. Really? Well, I don't disagree that it's beautiful. I think it's it is beautiful. I find it absolutely inappropriate for the film, and it makes me crazy. <laughs> um, it is way too saccharine and sweet. And uh, it, I, there is one sequence where the theme itself is used in an interesting way. It's when, you know, um, De Niro comes back and he stays in the cab and drives past his welcome home party. And he's in a hotel and he's kind of falling apart. And um, that, you know, anytime that theme comes back, in this case, in sort of a minor um, variation, I think is interesting. Uh, but that it's just a mind-numbingly sweet guitar um, um, bit in the beginning, and at the end, I just find it grating, Interesting. terrible. Interesting. Yeah, I can't stand it. I've never. I mean, even from the first, <laughs> it was in one of my when I first started taking piano lessons. You know, I got one of these books, <laughs> these collections of 
um, you know, popular movie and TV themes. And the deer hunter was like right after the theme from Cheers. <laughs> and, <laughs> and so so I actually grew up playing this thing when I was like eight years old, long before I was it was ever appropriate for me to see the deer hunter or knew it was a war movie. I thought really it was about hunting deer, which was traumatic enough for me at the time. This clearly came out at a time when people were kind of ready to talk about the Vietnam War. This film came out, Coming Home came out, and there was one more film, and I'm blanking on what it was, but one more film came out. Oh, it was, uh, um, uh, well, two more films, The Boys in Company C and Go Tell the Spartans, all came out in 1978. They were all other Vietnam War films that came out this year um, that kind of opened the floodgates for a good number of other Vietnam uh, films to kind of start appearing. Um, and it was a little bit at the Academy Awards, a little bit kind of of a battle of Vietnam films, uh, war of the anti-war movies, as some people have said. Um, people battling, you know, should Coming Home win or The Deer Hunter win? And Coming Home is a very interesting Vietnam film that deals with, as the title says, Coming Home, as John Voight comes home and he's in a wheelchair, and how does he deal with that? It's as if The Deer Hunter was made and followed Stephen instead of Michael. You know, that's kind of what coming home is. Mm -hmm. yeah, um, right. But so that was kind of a, a big split. And so when the Oscars, when it came down to it, John Voight ended up beating Robert De Niro for Best Actor. Um, and then, uh, but Christopher Walken did win for Best Supporting Actor. And then picture went to Deer Hunter, obviously. Um, Jane Fonda also won for Coming Home for her performance there, her second Oscar after Clute. And uh, Maggie Smith, not in a Vietnam War film, uh, but in California Suite, she ended up winning Best Supporting Actress, beating Meryl Streep. First time out of the gate, and she did not win. But, you know, yeah. she's had more nominations than anyone else, she, so I think that... She, she could have really been something. That's right. <laughs> if only the tides had turned in her favor. Oh, well. Oh, well. <laughs> <laughs> How did the uh, film do uh, with the dollars and cents? The film did uh, pretty good. Like I said, this film, the original budget was uh, $8.5 million. Chimino and his, uh, his overspending ended up bringing the budget to $15 million. <laughs> So that's quite a jump, quite a jump. Um, it was an $8 million wedding. <laughs> it was all the wedding. Uh, it went uh, so 15 million, which is about 53 and a half million in today's dollars. So um, you know, not I mean, still not too bad. It ended up um, grossing domestically about 49 million dollars adjusted. That's about 175 million. So I, I didn't find any international figures, but that's enough for it to have done pretty well for itself. It ended up with an adjusted profit per finished minute of about 663,000 per finished minute. So, you know, it did pretty well for itself. It certainly did. And it, it's one of those films that I think really, even as, as long and as graphic and as controversial as the film is, I think it still, um, it holds up under the weight of these performances of this incredible cast. It's absolutely, I think, worth watching. Yeah, I, I think it is too. I completely agree. Uh, let's rank it. Let's do it. Head over to flickchart.com slash the next reel, everybody, and make sure you set up an account so that you can rank the movies that we're watching as we rank the movies that we're watching and see if you, uh, see if you agree. All right. Where for, do we start? First up, The Deer Hunter or Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? 
Hmm. I think I'm going to say, oh, brother. I'm going to say, oh, brother. The Deer Hunter or The Adventures of Baron Munchausen? I'm going to say The Deer Hunter. I am too. The Deer Hunter or La Vie en Rose? I'm going to say The Deer Hunter. I will say The Deer Hunter. The Deer Hunter or A League of Their Own? I'm going to go with Tom Hanks on this one. Say A League of Their Own. Yeah, I'm I'm going to do... There's no crying in Vietnam. No, no, there probably (laughs) wasn't crying in Vietnam. Uh, well, we certainly saw plenty of it. So, uh, the the deer hunter. You know what's strange about the deer hunter? One of the posters, it's like Robert De Niro with the red headband. It's like, isn't yeah. it Christopher Walken with the red headband? Wouldn't that make more sense for the poster? Yeah, but because did De Niro wear the red headband ever? No, he only wore kind of whatever is the the yellow one that they're wearing in the uh, in the camp yeah. earlier. Yeah, right. So, uh, the deer hunter driving Miss Daisy. Driving Miss Daisy. I'm going to say the deer hunter. Why? I I, I find it um, more challenging. It's something that challenges me more. And the uh, I, I think just the the scenes with all of the the Russian roulette and all of the post-Vietnam scenes I find just really powerful and not to say I don't find Driving Miss Daisy powerful but this I just feel um, there's a lot of strength and and uh, you know challenging situations brought forth from the directing all right so should I do do you want to explain why you then picked A League of Their Own (laughs) because it's more fun to watch (laughs) (laughs) And Driving Miss Daisy is not as fun to watch as as A League of Their Own. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just saying, you know, I'm not one to necessarily question our rationale on these things. I mean, I know it's very much a gut thing, but I do find it a little bit interesting contextually that just a second ago, you picked There's No Crying in Baseball, which is clearly not as challenging to watch. It's all, it's, and now you want to be challenged as soon as Miss Daisy comes on. That's true. I think you're ageist. <laughs> Maybe I am, Pete. What are you going to do about it? I'm going to rock paper scissors you on principle. Oh, okay. <laughs> How do you feel this, about this that? This is what flick charts all about. You know, sometimes that's, you that's rank right. a movie because of you know you you laugh more in another, but then another time when you rank it, you have to rank it on quality. But it's it's always up in the air. But let's rock paper scissors anyway. I want to do that. All right. One, One two, two, three. Paper. Rock. Boom. Son of a monkey. You just got karma'd. All right. All right, Driving Miss Daisy takes it. The Deer Hunter or Field of Dreams? <laughs> Field of Dreams for me. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> you are ageist. <laughs> That's what it is. It's a movie about old people, and you're going to pick the one about Russian roulette. But if it's about baseball and old two by four. <laughs> Absolutely. I'll give you Field of Dreams. <laughs> okay. I have no problem with that. You, sir, however. <laughs> the Deer Hunter or the Roaring Twenties? I'll do the Deer Hunter I have here. No idea. I'm doing the Deer Hunter the, here. The Deer Hunter. Oh, there weren't any old people in it. 
Roaring Twenties, though. But. The Deer Hunter or King's Row? I'm going to do the Deer Hunter. Deer Hunter. Holy cow. We're finally there. 121 out of 198. All right. There you go. <laughs> it's probably about right. Wait, what am I, who am I kidding? That's exactly about right. I won. <laughs> hey, uh, where do we go from here in our Meryl Streepathon? Um, we're going to her next film that she did right after this, which is the, uh, or no, I shouldn't say the next film that she did right after this. The next film that she uh, received an Oscar nomination for after this, which was Kramer versus Kramer. It did happen to be the very next year, though. Woody Allen's Manhattan happened right in between. And she was, what was, uh, what is this seduction of Joe Tynan? That's another thing. Oh, yeah, there was, was another there 1979. Was, there was another little Alan thing. Alan Alda. Yeah. She got second billing on that one. Mm. But anyway, almost immediately right after <laughs> was Kramer, Kramer versus Kramer. Super close. <laughs> it's the second in our series of Meryl Streep comedies. Yes, indeed. Laugh Riot, uh, just like this laugh one. Laugh Riot, yeah. I haven't seen Kramer vs. Kramer in a long while, so I'm very curious to come back to it and see uh, and see it again. Now that, yeah. especially now that I'm a father. Yeah, right. Uh, God, it makes me throw up in my mouth. <laughs> I mean, uh, you know, in a very talented way. <laughs> are, are you saying go. you're talented at throwing up I'm in your mouth? What are you saying? I'm I throw up about, while appreciating the talent. Of my mouth, what? <laughs> hey, this has been a good one, Andy. Uh, I gotta go to bed. I think that's probably for the best, Pete. All right, I'm going to do one. It's a one star. Clearly, Acute Observer did not like this film as much as we did. And and again, I'm not saying I'm going to go watch this every weekend. Just saying. Had some redeeming value for me. Mm-hmm. And so Acute Observer says, almost as if to answer my statement, this is one of the worst movies that I remember. It has almost no redeeming value. Was it meant to be a buddy picture about Nick and Michael? <laughs> <laughs> the amount of drinking could have made the title The Beer Hunters. Note the product <laughs> placement for advertising. <laughs> That's pretty funny, I will say. The Beer the beer Hunters. <laughs> There's no... It was just one. It would have been The Beer Hunter, to be fair. Oh uh, Well, Oklahoma, oh, Oklahoma Apache Dave said, uh, don't buy it. Gave it a one star. The movie was brooding, plotting, and boring. <laughs> Typical of the times. Wow. Very judgmental of the 70s. I think it was striving for, quote, deep, end quote, and philosophical, but wound up being pathetic. Save your money. Wow. Clearly, uh, Oklahoma Apache Dave is not a fan of uh, anything from the period. I guess he wow, just yeah. finds everything brooding, plotting, and boring. So just uh, you know, just skip it. Skip it. Over long. Mm. Most long. Wow. Yeah. 
Thanks, Amazon.